joy, peace, tranquility, vibrancy, and wellness. Isn't this what you want instead of constant stress? That's what host Rochelle Lawson is going to help you with on Blissful Living. There are many ways to reduce stress, some you may not even know about. Doesn't a little peace and tranquility sound like just what you've been looking for? Relax for a few minutes with Rochelle. She's the queen of feeling fabulous. Hello and welcome to Blissful Living. This is the queen of feeling fabulous, Rochelle Marie Lawson. And I am so honored to be able to share this time with you and bring phenomenal guests to you to help you uh, reduce or eliminate stress as you build and sustain wellness, wisdom, and wealth so that you can live the lifestyle that you dream of and that you desire. Today's show, of course, is going to be another great show with another great guest. And before we get started um, with the guest in our conversation. I want to thank our sponsors, Blissful Living for You. Blissful Living for You is a company that is focused on holistic principles of, of course, building and sustaining wellness, wisdom, and wealth. Have a lot of, um, a lot of variety of things going on that can help you to improve your health and well-being, uh, get your mindset right so you can kill it out in the game, and also to protect and build and sustain your wealth and protect your assets so that you don't lose them uh, by doing things that you don't know you shouldn't do. That can be very, very costly. So you want to check out Blissful Living for You at BlissfulLivingForYou.com. I know they have some specials coming up with regards to the changing of the seasons to help you stay fabulous, fit, healthy, and well. The next sponsor I'd like to thank is a telecommunications company located in Silicon Valley. They've been in business for almost 30 years, and what they do is they install voice, data, fiber optic, and wireless system as well as speaker systems, audio and video equipment, and um, anything that allows you to communicate effectively and efficiently with your customers no matter where they may be in the world. Their model is they make the right connections so that you don't lose any money or any business because your stuff is falling off, calls dropping off, people can't connect with you, technology, computer systems, Internet, all that stuff going down. If this is something that you're interested in or you know someone that needs services to help keep their telecommunications operating absolutely fabulous, then you want to check out alldaycableinc.com. They, again, are located in Silicon Valley and have been around for almost 30 years, so they've weathered the storms of all the different business cyclical cycles that we have, and they're still around, and they're still killing it with uh, making sure their customers have the right connections so that they don't lose any business. So check out alldaycableinc.com. Now, with regards to our show today, I want to just talk to you a little bit about um, the guest and tell you about the guest. Now, the guest is Brian C. Wilson, and he's a Ph.D. Dr. Brian C. Wilson is a Ph.D., and he has a book that he's written about uh, a radio pioneer, and it's very, very interesting with regards to what's in the book and what Dr. Wilson is going to share with us. Now, you may be thinking, why would I want to listen to something about, you know, uh, some some pioneer back in the day. How is that going to help my life? What what benefits am I going to get from listening to this show? But what I want to do say is, even though you may have those questions, you might want to grab a piece of paper, something to write with, sit back and relax and really enjoy the information that Dr. Brian Wilson is going to share with us because I guarantee you'll be intrigued, as intrigued as I was when I found out a little bit more about um, what he's going to share. So let me just tell you a little bit about Dr. Wilson. Brian C. Wilson is the author of the new book, John E. Fetzer and the Quest for the New Age. He's a professor of American religious history and the Department of Comparative Religion at Western Michigan University. It was during his years in the Peace Corps that he developed a fascination with religion 
initially fueled by what he experienced um, of ancient religion of the Maya people and of Roman Catholicism. Returning to the United States, Dr. Wilson completed his Ph.D. in religious studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where he studied religion in the United States. And in 1993, he co-authored a book on new religious movements in California. And it's kind of piqued your curiosity because we you know anything about California. Us Californians, <laughs> we kind of are little trendsetters in our own way, no matter what. It may be. Now, after moving to um, Western Michigan University, Dr. Wilson wrote an award-winning book on serial inventor and the leading Seventh-day Adventist of his time, Dr. John Harvey Kellogg. Now, the success of that book, um, the Fetzer Institute invited Dr. Wilson to write a full-length spiritual biography of its founder. Now, um, Dr. Wilson not only explores the evolution of Fetzer's beliefs, but how he puts them into action by permanently endowing three funds that will foster research into the scientific spiritual interface for years to come and help cultivate a more peaceful, loving, and inclusive world founded on the principle that we are all connected through one infinite force. And so with that, I would like to welcome Dr. Brian C. Wilson to Blissful Living. Hi, Dr. Wilson. How are you? Hello. Thank you, Rochelle. Great to be with you. It's good to have you. This kind of piqued my curiosity when this came, um, the information about the book, and you came across my desk, and I was like, oh, you know, I've always been intrigued about things like that. And so, you know, I always like to give the listeners out there, a well-rounded experience with regards to just wisdom that we can pick up from just little things that we're not even, even expecting to get wisdom from. So tell us, just, you know, first of all, who was this guy, John E. Fetzer? Uh-huh. Well, as you mentioned, he was a radio pioneer. Uh, he his, he lived from uh, 1901 to um, 1991, almost made it to his 90th birthday, but not quite. And way back in the 1920s and 1930s, uh, he was a radio pioneer here in southwest Michigan. And he spent most of his life headquartered in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And he created one of the first commercial radio stations uh, here in the state. And what he did is he, he took that and added to it uh, FM stations and television and cable, and eventually he uh, became the owner of the Detroit Tigers. So he became immensely wealthy through his, uh, through his businesses. So he's a media mogul, uh, a big league uh, ball team owner. But the reason I'm interested in him as a professor of comparative religion is that in parallel with his uh, business success, he was also a lifelong spiritual seeker. Mm. Now, I want about, you to... Uh, how he basically constructed his worldview over almost 60 years. That's, you know, that's really cool, and I love, I love stories like that. I want you to just share with the listeners, because they might be, we, we said a buzzword, and anytime there's a buzzword, I like to, like, educate, just in case somebody doesn't know exactly what we're talking about. Sure. You yeah. said comparative religion. What exactly yep. is that? Well, comparative religion is the academic field in which we um, basically do exactly as, as it says. We, we look at a variety of different religions and compare them um, using um, – there are typically seven categories of, of cross-cultural comparison that we uh, not to find out which is the best or, you know, mm -hmm. uh, which one you should uh, you should join because I'm at a state university and we, the last thing we do is proselytize. But the importance is by comparing religious traditions, by comparing their beliefs, their practices, their institutions, um, you get to know better um, both traditions or as many traditions as you compare. And I like to uh, think of it as um, back in the day when, when my elementary school teachers were trying to teach me English grammar, um, <laughs> it didn't take. And it was only in high school when I had the great opportunity of taking Latin that I learned English grammar. And it was only by comparing English with Latin that I was able to actually grasp my own language. 
So it's wow. kind of like that in comparative religion. Yeah. Wow, that's actually that's actually pretty cool because you never know. You're out seeking and you know looking at basically comparing other religions, and sometimes you know uh, something will just pop out to you about your own that you yep. may not that you may have overlooked yep. in the past. So it's actually really cool. So now let's get back to Mr. Fetzer. Uh-huh. You know what was he like as a person? Well, um, he was uh, apparently just a, a super smart and very intuitive guy. Um, unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to meet him because he passed away in 91, and I came out to uh, Michigan in 96. So I just just missed him. Um, but the people I've talked to who knew him very well, his friends and family and colleagues, um, say um, he was a very personable person, uh, just a, an incredible um, uh, business mind, knew how to make good decisions, knew how to surround himself with good people. Um, but he also had this spiritual side. And the interesting thing about that is that he kept that side of himself pretty quiet until uh, his last two decades when he got into his 70s and his 80s. And so most of his colleagues who worked very closely with him for years um, had no idea the kind of depth and time and energy he put into uh, his spiritual search and his, his investigation of all sorts of different metaphysical and other kinds of spiritual traditions. So there's an interesting dichotomy in the man. On the one hand, he's a very public figure, but on the other hand, his, his spiritual side, until his last two decades, was very, very private. Well, you know, I could see that happening during the time of his life where he was, you know, the pioneer. Um, and sometimes even in today's society, you can't, you know, you have your public self and, and everyone knows your public self. But sometimes your private self, you, you can't, it's not the right time to divulge things, I guess, yep. is what yep. I'm trying to say. And so he yep. was in that era where, you know, he was uh, into medical, physical, and, you know, back then, People probably called him crazy or, you know, witchcraft or, you know, that all that kind of, you know, nonsense, which we now know today is just has evolved into something a lot more beautiful than how they used to believe it to be mm-hmm. if you were, you know, deciphering from the norm of how religion yep. was, right? So I could totally see why, although he was very public, he kept that part of him very private until he got to a certain age. And they all say, older people always say, you get to a certain age where you just don't give a darn anymore. <laughs> you probably got to that age and just like, yep. I don't give a darn anymore. This is who I am. You either take yep. me and love me or the heck with you, right? That's right. Well, yeah, and by that time he was very confident about who he was. So right. he was much more comfortable basically talking to people about it. And part of it, too, was it was kind of a business decision because um, – he started his his kind of metaphysical journey in the 1930s. So this stuff was out there and it was around. Um, and he contacted all sorts of people about it, but it was out of the mainstream in in the Midwest. And he was really concerned that if people, especially in Michigan, um, tended to be pretty conservative religiously, if they knew the kinds of things he was interested in, they'd probably misunderstand it. And he was mm-hmm. afraid he was going to lose, like, advertisers or mm-hmm. audience members. So part of it was a business decision. He decided, okay, we're going to protect the businesses, and I'm just going to keep my, my spiritual search private for the time being. Mm-hmm. But then and he probably was right, too. Yeah, I think so, too, because he he really it things had changed so much from the 1930s to the 1970s uh, when he started being really public about these things that it's right. just remarkable. It's really remarkable. Well, wow. now, do, do you know um, if he ever had any contact with, you know, a favorite guy of mine, uh, Napoleon Hill? No, I don't think he did. I did. I didn't run across that. Yeah. Because hmm. I, I think that would have been research. very interesting. Yeah, I think that would have been very interesting um, because mm-hmm. Napoleon Hill also was someone, you know, in that era, so to speak, uh, that generation, and uh, did some things where he was, you know, put it, put in the face of some very, very, very ex- <laughs> the wealth makers of the world, so to speak. But yet he had this side of him that he was really uh, into metaphysical things and, you know, things that were just a little bit different, not of the tradition, um, traditional base of uh, religious 
contacts during that era. So it just hey, really been pretty cool. But yeah, really cool, really cool. You know, it's like yeah. the Lapoli Hill stuff that was written in the 30s. You would swear he wrote it yesterday because it applies to today. You know, how how does someone write where they're so forward thinking in that day and age where no matter where you, I think if we picked the book up 200 years from now, it would still be applicable because of mm-hmm. all the you know you know what I'm saying. So it's just it's yeah. just very interesting. Now I want to know what got Mr. Fetzer interested in medical physical traditions and alternative spirituality in general. Well, there's a couple things I think happened. Um, One um, has to do with his fascination with radio. Um, He he had a a brother-in-law when he was growing up, a guy named Fred Ribble, who was a telegrapher on the Wabash Railroad. And Ribble was very interested in early, early radio. So he got uh, John Fetzer to help him build a very primitive crystal radio set. And this is just a very, very kind of primitive radio. And this was back in 1911, 1912. And Fetzer was absolutely fascinated by the fact that you could, you could tune this thing in and pull, you know, voices and, and, and music and just all kinds of things right out of the air. So he was fascinated by this idea of these invisible radio waves that you could actually tune into. And as he tells it later in life, um, he began speculating that these radio waves were simply part of an electromagnetic spectrum that extended out and included even more subtle energies. Um, And he tended to think that um, the entire cosmos essentially is made up of spiritual energy. So material energy, spiritual energies, for him, these were two sides of the same coin. So I think radio got him thinking along these lines. And there's another uh, reason, I think, is that um, he was born and raised a Christian, and he was baptized a Methodist. But at a certain point, his mother converted to Seventh-day Adventism, which is uh, um, a very strict um, apocalyptic sect um, that popped up here in, in, in Michigan back in the 19th century. It's now an international tradition. And John Fetzer followed him, followed her, followed his mother into the tradition. And he was a good Adventist for a number of years. But then in his late 20s, uh, he found that it really wasn't kind of satisfying his spiritual needs. So he mm-hmm. broke with the church. And that was a very kind of traumatic thing for him. And it sent him off into all sorts of different directions looking for a new kind of spiritual path. So I think it was both radio and his his early uh, religious education and upbringing that kind of steered him towards uh, the spiritual path he eventually took. Wow. Now, when we're looking at the context of, uh, you know, spiritual path and, you know, spirituality and stuff, and and being that he was in, I'm just going to, for the sake of wordsmithing, you know, quote unquote traditional type of religion. Mm-hmm. What does what is, what does spirituality mean to him? Because you know it can mean mm-hmm. things, different things to different people. But what did it mean yeah. to Mr. Fester? Yeah, spirituality is one of those words that has you know ten thousand different meanings depending on who you ask. But for him, it was uh, again, it was a very simple idea. He believed that uh, all the universe was essentially um, spirit. And he believed that there was a great central source that emanated out spirit. And since he was a radio engineer, he always thought in terms of energy metaphors. So he thought of spiritual energy. And he believed that the entire cosmos is essentially a dynamic kind of whirl of circulating spiritual energies. And for people to get, uh, you know, health, wealth, and well-being and enlightenment, they had to put themselves into contact with or in tune with these circulating spiritual energies. So for him, his, his, his spirituality really was based on this notion that spirit is everything. Wow, it's so cool. I mean, it's just, it, you know, it's like once you get to that part or once you get to that point in your way of thinking, kind of like me, it's like I apply it to, to everything that I do, you know, yes. wellness, yeah. wellness, wisdom, and wealth, so to speak. So um, it, it's really cool to hear that we're in the m- millennial century, but yet, you know, and this is becoming more evolved 
so to speak, uh, mm-hmm. more open to discuss. Yet we have yes. this gentleman, you know, from the you know early part of the 19th century um, that was all into it and totally knew it and got it, you know, and um, and probably utilized all of that in full capacity with regard to his life. Now, in in what sense was he a new ager? Because you know that's a term. I mean, I'm thinking I'm a I'm a product of the '60s, so uh-huh. you know, a new ager is for me is a you know an everyday term, so to speak. But I know as I evolved as a child and got I want to say close to the millennial, the new age type of thing took on a little bit more different context. So yeah. what did he, what did it mean to Mr. Fessler in the sense of um you know being a new ager? Yeah. Yeah, the new age again it's like spirituality. It's one of those terms that has multiple meanings depending on who you ask. Um Today, I mean, it's interesting because um, if you call somebody a new ager, um, it, it can almost be, a, um, um, you know, a term of depreciation um, because people now kind of, um, what, equate new agers with a kind of shallow spirituality. It's hyper-individualistic right. and narcissistic. Right. But what John Fetzer meant by it and he started applying this term to himself back in the 1960s um, before it was common. And it, it really meant to him that um, he believed that if enough individuals on the planet um, basically developed themselves spiritually and achieved individual spiritual transformation, that would catalyze a global spiritual transformation. And that for him was the new age when enough human beings had basically um, uh, evolved to higher levels of consciousness, that the planet itself changes as well. So for him, his spirituality was about individual transformation, but always in service to a greater kind of social transformation. And that's the that's the idea, unfortunately, that has been lost uh, in the new age in the 21st century, since new age now tends to be very commercial and very individualistic. But back when he was using the term in the 1960s, mm-hmm. there was this real social component. And in fact, when the new age movement actually, you know, um, coalesced in the 1980s and, and people actually uh, liked the term new age, there was also this social component. So it's it's shifted. It's shifted a lot. And it's kind of right. controversial for me to call him a new ager um, because that's going to conjure up for people some negative connotations. But hopefully if, if they read the book, they'll realize that John Fetzer really meant it in a much more, uh, what, um, uh, deep way than the word is used today. Yeah, you know, it is kind of sad that how, um, you know, people are trying to profit for off the new age wave, so mm-hmm. to speak, um, the yeah. I, the enlightenment of it, you know. I mean, granted, everything you know has a way, and you know, prosperity comes to those who are in alignment for it, and all of that good stuff. But some of the things I do see, it's I know to be just like, oh my god, what are they doing? What are they telling people? Why are they doing this? You know, it's <laughs> kind of like muddy in the water, so to speak, mm-hmm. with regards to it. And you know, I just don't want people because it really is a beautiful uh, awakening. I don't want people to be swayed or dissuade, so to speak, by mm-hmm. you know some of the shenanigans that are going on with regards to the the new new age era so to speak yeah. and, and so yeah. um it, it's kind of cool that he was true to the sense of what the word new age meant and should still mean um and uh and we're able to share this information with people i think that i think that's what's so cool you know on a platform that he you know you know as archaic as old radio fm was <laughs> or is to you know these kids nowadays not archaic to me, but, you know, um, a platform, it's just going out in the masses on a platform that, you know, he, you know, had of his own. So it's it's really cool. It's just kind of how things come full circle, you know, so to speak, right? Yeah. Really cool. Now, what are some of the, um, you know, medical physical traditions that uh, Mr. Fetzer was interested in? And, you know, um, it should we pay attention to some of this stuff that's in the book with regards to this? Mm-hmm. Well, for me, uh, it was a lot of fun 
to do this biography because it allowed me to, um, you know, basically study all sorts of these different metaphysical traditions. Um, after John Fetzer left the Seventh-day Adventists, um, one of the first places he went back in the 1930s was he went to a spiritualist camp in uh, Indiana, a place called Camp Chesterfield. And it's still in business. It's still thriving to this day. And it was kind of a permanent um, psychic fair. And there he met uh, mediums who were giving seances, psychics of all kinds, people who did all sorts of interesting divination, that kind of stuff. So that was his first taste of metaphysical traditions. And then um, uh, um, Camp Chesterfield has a, has a bookstore, a very mm-hmm. good kind of alternative religion spirituality bookstore. And Fetzer basically said that uh, every time he went down there, and he went down there from the 1930s to the 1970s, he said he would pick up an armload of books and bring them home. So it's through that that he was introduced to things like um, theosophy and hermeticism and Rosicrucianism and, and various forms of esoteric Freemasonry and uh, parapsychology, the paranormal, things like that. So um, it's just amazing. And new thought, of course, was tremendously important. So the kind of um, mind over matter teachings of a variety of people like Ernest Holmes and, and um, well, Norman Denson Peel, of course, in the 1950s. Um, mm-hmm. So that was tremendously important for him. But the interesting thing is he never stopped searching, never stopped looking, never stopped reading, never stopped practicing. So, for example, in the 1970s, uh, he had always said, you know, I should really meditate. I should, I should learn how to meditate. And so he took up transcendental meditation in the middle of the 1970s. Mm. And at, at this mm-hmm. point, he's in, the, he's in his 70s. And he became very good friends with uh, the founder of TM, the Maharishi Yogi, and advised him on uh, media relations and, you know, how to use radio and TV to get the word out. And in turn, uh, John Fetzer basically took the courses and began incorporating transcendental meditation into his life. Um, so that was, uh, you know, late. Wow. Yeah. He also, um, uh, among many kind of channeled documents, channeled scriptures, uh, he came across A Course in Miracles. And that was one of the, uh, he was one of the earliest people to actually read um, A Course in Miracles. And that impressed him so much that he put together a reading group with his friends, and they spent hours um, studying A Course in Miracles. And that's something he continued reading until um, the end of his life. So it's wow. really, it's, it's just amazing. And that just kind of scratches the surface of, of the, the different traditions that he was exposed to and, and he basically studied. And the book, one of the, I think one of the fun things about the book is not only do you get this interesting story about this, this businessman, radio pioneer, ball club owner, you know, uh, spiritual seeker, mm-hmm. but it's also a really pretty good introduction to a wide variety of metaphysical traditions. So if you want to learn about those specifically, um, I think the book is a good kind of introduction to a lot of these different uh, spiritual movements. Wow. So you listeners out there, you heard that, um, you know, if you're interested, you kind of are not too much aware, not too aware of what medical physical is or what we're talking about, but you're interested, we've piqued your curiosity, you want to learn a little bit more without, um, you know, diving in too deep or having someone look mm-hmm. at the book you're reading and be ostracized because it says something about <laughs> medical physical, then, <laughs> you know, this is a great big book to pick up so you can do it kind of secretly as as the kids nowadays say on the down low, right, and not expose <laughs> yourself but still get some wisdom and, you know, you know, learn a lot that may help you to continue your study if that's the path you're meant to take. So mm-hmm. um, that was just something we just, you know, shared, and, and, and I, I love that. Now, with regards to, you know, his spirituality and uh, medical, physical curiosity, so to speak, and, and educating himself around that, and because he came from a traditional type of, quote-unquote, religious mm-hmm. background, what were some of his practices when it came his spiritual, what kind of spiritual practices did he engage in? 
Well, um, there are a number of things he did. And w one of the interesting things is, even though he was very private about this, um, sometimes he applied these to his businesses. So, for example, he was fascinated with um, all sorts of forms of divination, like astrology, and he used the Ouija board, and uh, um, he, he loved tarot cards. But he also carried around with him uh, a, a pendulum. And oh. um, the pendulum was just simply a, a lead weight on the end of a string. And the idea was that um, if he had a, a decision to make, and it could be a business decision or a personal decision or anything that he wasn't quite sure of, um, he'd pull out the pendulum and just hold it between two fingers and then ask it a series of yes-no questions. And depending on which way it deflected, he believed it would indicate the proper course of action. So in this case, he believed that um, he had a, a, something of a psychic power uh, to basically, you know, mind over matter, use the pendulum to help him make, uh, make business decisions. But in his Very personal life, yeah, um, I think the most important thing he got into was late in life was the, the meditation. And it started with the transcendental meditation. And then he got into another tradition. Um, in the United States, one of the forms of it is called, it's, the organization is called the uh, Movement for Spiritual Inner Awareness, or MSIA. And they practice a version of um, an ancient Hindu tradition of meditation. Well, ancient, it goes back to the 19th century. It's called Radha Swami. And John Fetzer basically took up this this meditation, which is based on the repetition of a variety of mantras, uh, and practiced that literally until he was on his deathbed. And as he was dying, he was basically reciting the mantras. So for him, meditation was tremendously important um, to basically keep himself on an even keel and keep himself connected to the universe and, and just to keep himself you know, happy and uh, in, in a state of well-being. Wow, amazing! Because I'm as you're talking about the pendulum, I'm looking. I have two. Mm, uh, mm -hmm. I think I have three. I can't. I don't know where the third one is, but I have two that I hang over my desk, and I don't use them as often. Um, sometimes I think that when I use them, is it me really doing it, or you know, where is it? You know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? But I don't sure. use them as often, sure. but I have them. They're beautiful, um, and I love them. I love the energy that they exude um, on my desk. But the other thing that is so fascinating um, with regards to his spiritual practices is meditation. And I've been meditating uh, for a long time, probably since I was somewhere in my teens, um, because I'm, as we say in Ayurveda, I'm a pitta mm -hmm. dosha, and so uh -huh. pitta is full of fire. And so one of the ways, um, you know, so I wouldn't get in trouble for acting out with my parents, <laughs> one of the ways that I would um, calm the fire. And granted, when I started doing it, I didn't know what I was doing, but I was just doing sure. it because it made me feel better, right? But as I yeah. got older and became a nurse and, you know, got really into the holistic practices, I realized mm -hmm. that um, I got a wealth of information from meditation and um, and then I went on and got a certification, became a certified meditation specialist. Um, but it, it's amazing because it's like, wow, he's doing, you know, some of the things that I do, he, he did. And, and yeah. with the mantras and, you know, Ayurveda is, a, you know, the practice of mantras. And I used to have an app on my phone and I dropped the phone and broke the phone and I can't remember what the app was called, but I would go to it. all. I would just hit it and go to it all the time. And there were uh -huh. different mantras that I could recite, you know, using yeah. my um, mandala beads, right. Um, yeah. Saying them 108 times. And so it's like, wow, this is so cool. I feel like, you know, I'm talking about this guy who passed away, but I feel like it was like he, if I was to talk to him today, he would totally get, what I'm saying, yeah. even though I'm in such a way different generation, he would totally understand, and he wouldn't look at me crazy like some of the people when I start bringing up some of this stuff look at me like, what? You know, my friends oh, no, he, and family he, or whatever. Yeah. He'd completely understand. He'd completely understand. Yeah, you'd be on the and same wavelength. 
Right, exactly. And the funny thing is, um, I was a Catholic for many, many mm-hmm. years, and um, you know, kind of like, kind of totally got away from that. But I read. I was a lector. I read for the selected by the priest to read in, in mm-hmm. one of the um, highest attending masses on Sunday, and I did that for seventeen years. I really yeah. enjoyed that, but totally got away from it. And so I too say that I'm spiritual, and I have spiritual practices, and I have a relationship, you know, with the divine. God, mm-hmm. you know, but as far as traditional, I'm not traditional anymore, but I'm definitely spiritual and maybe a mm-hmm. little new age metaphysical, you know, now I'm, I'm, I'm aligning myself with Mr. Fetzer. So it's actually really cool. It's really cool to hear about somebody that was so, so, you know, uh, prior to me, but was still in um, to think and utilize these to help him with his success and his, you know, wellness, wisdom, and wealth. So it's just beautiful. I want to talk about, you know, his belief with regards to science and spirit spirituality. And mm-hmm. did he ever think it was a conflict there? Did he? How did he? How did he deal with that? Yeah, well, uh, I think early on, going back to his early radio days, and this idea that, um, you know, radio waves are just another form of energy that shades into even spiritual energy. Um, From an early age, I think he believed that science and spirituality really were two sides of the same coin. And in fact, part of his lifelong spiritual search was to look for ways to basically harmonize science and religion. And he wrote a couple of essays during the 1960s in which he, he basically said that if, if we're really going to achieve a higher level of consciousness, then we need to uh, have a science that recognizes the reality of spirit and incorporates that into its, its investigations and practice. So he was really looking for a, a spiritualized science. And what's interesting is um, he uh, founded a foundation, which today is called the Fetzer Institute, still uh, thriving today. And Mm -hmm. originally the idea in the 1970s was he was going to fund research into parapsychology. So things like ESP and clairvoyance and psychokinesis and those kinds of things, because he felt that that was probably the best way to prove the the harmony between science and religion, that if you could prove scientifically the reality of psi, I mean, these psychic forces, that would go a long way into basically proving the reality of spirit. So I think for him, his his early uh, um, uh, uh, investment in research in parapsychology was an attempt to do this, to harmonize science and religion, and that continued to be a theme throughout the rest of his life. Wow, that's amazing. Um, just you know, just amazing to hear about this stuff from someone that you know lives prior to us, but still was in tune. And like I said, Napoleon Hill was totally in tune to this stuff. And I'm beginning to think that there um, is synergy with it. You know, mm-hmm. not. You know what I'm saying? It's just like these people are so, just have so much wisdom way beyond the time period that they lived in um, that so fits with today and what's happening today and how we can utilize this information in our life to really live a beautiful life. So um, it's, it's really, really cool. Now, did he believe there was a connection between mind, body, mind, body, spirit, and health and well-being? I mean, I know yeah. what I believe, but I want to hear what, since I'm kind of in tune to what he says and what he thought, his thought processes, I want to hear what mm-hmm. he believes with regards to that. Well, he thought there was an intimate connection between mind, body, and spirit. And again, it goes back to this energy metaphor. And he believed that essentially mind, well, we'll start at the bottom, body, mind, and spirit were just simply uh, the same energy vibrating at different frequencies. So he felt that they were interconnected and and, uh, formed a a unit, essentially. And to have health, uh, both in mind and body, you basically had to be open to spirit. And what's interesting is... um, At the end of the 1970s, uh, he got rather frustrated with uh, research in parapsychology, and his own health was beginning to fail at that point, and his wife's was too. Uh, Unfortunately, she eventually died of Alzheimer's disease. 
so he started thinking mm. about health and how his spiritual beliefs fit into this. And so he shifted the funding priorities of the Fetzer Institute away from the parapsychology and towards uh, early research into holistic health uh, and alternative medicine. And he was really fascinated by the possibility of using the human aura, so the energies that basically emanate from the human body, uh, mm -hmm. if you could come up with a technology that could actually register that, um, you could potentially use that to diagnose and cure disease. So he became very interested in, in what's now come to be called energy medicine. And he funded a number of projects uh, along these lines. He worked with uh, the Edgar Cayce um, organization, the um, Association for Research and Enlightenment Clinic in Arizona, to basically pioneer these things. And he funded um, the first energy medicine conference in the world, which occurred in the late 1980s in Madras, India. So a lot of people who are, uh, are in the energy medicine kind of field uh, look back to Fetzer and the Fetzer Institute as one of kind of the you know the, the the first catalysts for getting people to to think seriously about these things. So for John Fetzer, um, he he believed in biomedicine. He believed that doctors were doing great work and that that should you know be used. But he right. really felt that medicine was incomplete if it didn't take into account the power of the mind and the importance of spirit. I agree with him 100% as uh, a registered nurse and hyoretic nurse practitioner in mm -hmm. the uh, game of, you know, Western medicine for almost um, 30 years. I totally believe and I've always believed that there was a component missing when it came to Western medicine and the component or component would definitely spiritual as well as um you know mind uh, mm -hmm. a lot of times the scientists just focus on the body and the, the mechanism of the processes within the body but my belief is that if your mind is not right if your mind is not healthy there's no way that that you can have health and well-being in your body because what's in your mind always manifest in your body and I've seen it time and time and time mm -hmm. again so yeah. um, you know you hear about people that bring on disease because they think about it they think they have it they don't, may not even have it but because they think they have it and their belief is that they have it they manifest the disease you know yeah. or people yeah. that the complete opposite you know believe that they've been diagnosed with cancer and cancer is not going to kill them and they're going to cure themselves and they're going to be fine and lo and behold they do end up mm -hmm. you know um, so it it really is a mind body spirit connection, um, and it, you know. But again, I think we might just be a little bit more advanced on the spectrum of things when in energy, you know, spectrum of things mm -hmm. when it comes to uh, you know traditional Western medicine with health and well being. Mm -hmm. So it's really really very this is very interesting, very very interesting. Now let me ask you this because it's just all these questions are popping up. But let me ask you mm -hmm. this. Why did he rely so heavily, you know, uh, if he had this belief in spirituality and he was, you know, metaphysically connected, so to speak, and knew that the combination of mind, body, spirit, or body, mind, spirit, you know, as we trans up or transcends up or down, um, if he knew this and he believed in it and he experienced it and he witnessed it in his own life, Mm -hmm. then why did he rely so heavily upon spiritual advisors and channelers? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's an interesting part of his character because, um, like I said earlier, he believed he, he had um, some psychic powers and he believed that his, his business intuition was uh, some form of extrasensory perception. Um, but on the other hand, he was very modest about it and didn't believe he was like a virtuoso or anything like that. So he always sought out um, people uh, who he recognized as um, as genuine psychics. And, you know, he, he claimed that he had the ability to basically tell if somebody actually had um, psychic abilities. So uh, beginning way back in the 1930s when he started going to um, mediums and doing seances and going to psychic mm -hmm. healers and divination mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff, 
he um, became very comfortable with um, identifying people who he thought were genuine and then going back and, and basically using them for, uh, I mean, uh, getting their advice for things. And so this was a pattern through his life. And in the 1960s, he became very good friends with the psychic Jean Dixon. And she functioned mm. as kind of his psychic counselor for a while. And then in the very last decade of his life, um, he came into contact with a channeler and psychic, uh, a guy named Jim Gordon, um, who basically um, uh, became kind of uh, John Fetzer's personal, personal psychic and channeler uh, for the last of his life. And Fetzer really relied on him um, uh, to, you know, help him make business decisions and personal decisions, but also to help kind of uh, chart the course for his foundation, the Fetzer Institute. But he himself, again, he really doubted he had the kind of psychic abilities necessary, um, you know, to that that he felt that genuine psychics had. Right. Part of this was he had a, a very interesting mystical experience as a kid. Um, he was uh, in a in a department store in a small town in Indiana, and as a kid, he was somehow fooling around in the elevator, and the elevator got stuck, and this scared him. But then he looked up and he saw a vision of Jesus, and he was basically holding on to Jesus's leg, and Jesus says to him, "I'll I'll never let you go." And that was powerful for him. That was a powerful experience. But he never, after that, had an experience that was as powerful as that. And, in oh. fact, even in his late 70s, he decided to um, try LSD once. And um, he did. And he found it a very interesting but very troubling experience and never tried it again. And went back to his, you know, his habit of consulting people who were naturally in tune instead of chemically in tune. Right. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Interesting. Wow. In the 70s, huh? In the 70s. Wow. In the 70s, yeah. You see, you're never too young to learn new things, right? Never too long (laughs) to... Yeah, that's not what I would recommend, though. I don't. I would. No, me recommend. either. But it's just like you know, amazing. I'm not in my seventies, and I definitely want to experience experiment with it now. But yeah, you know, yeah. you know, some people are just they, you know, they're seeking, and sometimes when you seek, you you do things that you may, you know, may not necessarily have done when you were younger, or you know, yeah. that yeah. kind of stuff. So that's actually no, kind of shows- cool. Just a remarkable openness, even even late in his life when he was an old man. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, now, did he believe? Um, do you have a belief in reincarnation um, or past lives, and if they impacted mm-hmm. his life, or if you believe that they impacted his life? Yeah, um, I think he got his belief in reincarnation from his study of theosophy. And theosophy is this is a metaphysical tradition that um, uh, developed in the United States in the late 19th century, and it basically combined elements of Western esotericism with Hinduism and Buddhism. So, of course, in Hinduism and Buddhism, they're part of the Dharmic traditions, and there's a very strong belief in karma and reincarnation. And so, this became a cornerstone of John Fetzer's um, spiritual worldview. And at a certain point, um, he started uh, charting his past lives. And interestingly enough, he did this first by going to psychics and asking them to help him chart his past lives. Um, but then uh, uh, an English spiritual, uh, English um, medium rather, um, named Ina Twig, told him that he should use the Ouija board. So he then used the Ouija board to develop, you know, narratives about his past lives. And he believed that they went all the way back to the mythical island of Atlantis. So he believed he had lived multiple, multiple, multiple lives. And the importance for him was that um, he believed that throughout all his lives, he was on a spiritual mission. Uh, and his past lives, he, he never completed that spiritual mission, but each life was important because it gave him a certain amount of wisdom and knowledge that carried over into the next life. And so he felt that his present life, um, he had finally attained the, the wisdom and knowledge necessary to complete his um, spiritual mission, 
which turned out to create an institution, uh, the Fetzer Institute, um, to carry on his kind of spiritual vision. And so in the late 1980s, when the Fetzer Institute was uh, well-founded and, and um, going great guns, uh, he felt that he had actually uh, achieved his finally his spiritual mission after multiple past lives. And he said to people, and I, maybe half-jokingly, but he hoped that this was it, that he wouldn't have to come back for another life, that he could just continue his, his spiritual evolution on a higher plane. Oh, wow. That's cool. That's cool. He's like, this would be great, but, you know, hopefully I'm done coming back. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, yeah. I'm, maybe I've transcended. Hopefully I've transcended on to another aspect of this whole being of, of himself. So it's actually yeah. really, really cool. Now, you know, we know that he was a very wealthy gentleman, and um, with regards to that, Mm-hmm. What was the spiritual meaning of wealth to him? How did he view that? Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because even though he was tremendously wealthy, um, by the time he died, he'd been, uh, he was one of the 400 wealthiest Americans, according to Forbes magazine. And so he had a lot of money, but he, he lived a very, very frugal life, very modest life. Um, so there was no, um, you know, chauffeur-driven limousines or private jets or any of that kind of trapping of wealth. And here in Kalamazoo, he had a very nice home, but it wasn't a palace. And so he just lived very modestly. And I think part of that was he was always aware that his money essentially was destined for something other than just self-aggrandizement for himself, that it had to have some kind of spiritual meaning to be meaningful. So just making money wasn't enough. It had to be a, there had to be a mission behind it. It was the mission, not the money. Mm-hmm. And so he always talked about money as money is energy, and energy is the ability to do work in the world. And it can be good or it can be bad. And it really depends on how you use the money um, that determines whether it actually has a spiritual meaning to it. So late in life, when he was in his 19, when he was in his 70s, in the 1970s, he began uh, thinking about liquidating his businesses. And over the next few years, that's exactly what he did. He, he sold off all his businesses. He sold the Detroit Tigers. And he used the money, the millions that he made, uh, to create an endowment um, for the Fetzer Institute. So for him, that was the goal. That was the mission, um, to convert that kind of energy, that money that he had made over his life, and to invest it in this institution that would hopefully carry on his his vision. And he always envisioned the mission of the Fetzer Institute lasting 500 years, so well beyond uh, his life. Um, he was hoping his money would continue to be to do good in the world. Wow, that's neat. Yeah, the belief that you know money is really energy, and you know with any with any type of energy, you can it can be utilized for good or it can be utilized for bad, positive or negative. So it's really cool that he had that belief. And yeah, you know, it's, it, I mean, there's just so many cool things about this guy that. Um, it just falls in line to you know with a lot of stuff with what what we share here on Blissful Living. Now, um, did his spirituality help him to become more successful or a success with regards to business? Um, yeah, uh, I think in some very tangible ways. Again, he thought his business intuition well. He got he got wealthy uh, and built his companies because uh, you know he put in a lot of hard work and a lot of long hours. But in addition to that, um, he really felt that his intuition, his ability to make good business decisions and to surround himself with you know reliable people um, that he could work with, um, that this was a form of extrasensory perception. So in that regard, um, he did believe that his spiritual beliefs could. Um, could help his businesses. Um, it's interesting, though, that he, he again, he compartmentalized, and he was always kind of hesitant to impose his spiritual beliefs uh, on his businesses, um, although there are a couple of examples that are kind of interesting. One is after he started practicing transcendental meditation, he decided that he was going to introduce it to the, the baseball team. 
so in the 70s, at one of the spring trainings, he offered courses in transcendental meditation for the baseball players. Mm-hmm. And um, some of the players uh, took it up. It was completely voluntary. It wasn't imposed or anything like that. And several of the players took it up and found it was just tremendously useful uh, in their own lives, and it improved their game. Um, and, of course, the sp- sports writers of the time, you know, had a field day with it. They just thought it was very funny and very strange. Yeah, weird. Kind of like when Phil Jackson used to do the stuff with the uh, Chicago Bulls, you know. He was, yeah. you know, Phil, he was just like, what is he doing? But, okay, yep. whatever, you know, right, yeah. Well, today so it's imagine. interesting because if, uh, you know, if uh, if a star athlete says they're off meditating, nobody bat an eye. But back in the 70s, this was kind of revolutionary. Yeah, everybody thought it was a little bit on the flaky side. But today, yeah, things like, have changed oh, just remarkably. T- totally, right? Like, it, it, isn't yeah. that funny? You know, it's just kind of funny. I remember seeing, um, being a kid in the 70s and first, with probably my first experience of seeing any type of meditation or transcendental meditation was, there was that yogi guy, I can't, I don't want to say his name incorrectly, but the founder of the transitional meditation um, was mm-hmm. on television. And, you know, back in the 70s, we, we got maybe four or five channels. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? And so it was like whatever came on, you were stuck watching whether you wanted to watch it or not. And I That's think right. my mom or somebody was watching some show and the guy was on there um, doing the meditation stuff. And, mm-hmm. and then I just thought, well, he's just sitting there and he just looks so you know, I'm a little kid, but it was like, he just looked yeah. so peaceful. And and yeah. then um, I think he levitated, and I thought, that is so cool. <laughs> now, fast forward all the years later when I started, like, in my teens and I started meditating for myself, I never thought mm-hmm. about, you know, that guy or that first experience of seeing somebody meditate or never thought about levitation. All I just knew was mm-hmm. just it made me feel better it you know helped to cool the flames and as yeah. i learned more and yeah. more about it it was like it became really cool but you know i don't yeah. think i'll ever get yeah. to that point of being that enlightened to do that but that's okay because it's probably not what i'm it's probably you know you where you are where you're supposed to be or you're supposed to be where you are so it's that's okay right. it's okay yeah. but at least i know about it right and so it's, that's really cool all right so now we have this guy that just, you know, was basically a total trendsetter for his time period when it came to spirituality and metaphysics. And, you know, he was this, you know, radio station owner and owner of, a, you know, the, the Detroit Tigers. And I'm trying to think my baseball, I'm sure after we're done conversating, my baseball knowledge will kick in as to, you know, who was on the Detroit Tigers. Because <laughs> I'm a total sports fan, but it'll kick in, you know, um, who was on the Detroit Detroit Tigers during that time period, but for right now I can't think because I'm so so intrigued by all um, all of the stuff about Mr. Fetzer. What I want to know is, did he keep his spiritual search a secret? Um, well, no, we already talked about that. He he began to be more vocal in the latter mm-hmm. two decades of his life. Yeah. With regards to his family, did he have siblings? Um, and if so, how many siblings did he have? Well, yeah, he had a um, 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 two uh, uh, half siblings. He had a half brother mm-hmm. and uh, a half sister, and he was very close to both um, Harriet and um, who was known as Hattie, and um, Homer, Homer Fetzer. And um, what's interesting is that John Fetzer himself, uh, he he met and married his wife Rhea in 1926, and um, they were together until the 1980s when she passed away of Alzheimer's disease. But they themselves didn't have any children, um, so he didn't have any direct heirs uh, that he could basically you know, leave his fortune to. Wow. Uh, and so um, there, there are family members. In fact, um, the, the part of the Fetzer Institute that's uh, in charge of preserving John Fetzer's legacy that asked me to write this book it's called the, the Fetzer Memorial Trust, and it's now run by Bruce Fetzer, who happens to be the, the grand nephew of John Fetzer. So there's still a Fetzer connection there um, with, uh, with the Institute. Yeah. Wow. 
Very interesting. Very interesting. Um, you know, you kind of wonder why him and his wife didn't have kids. Maybe she, they couldn't, but it's just very interesting. Don't know. Yeah. Uh, you know, very, very interesting. Yeah. Wow. So now with regards to, you know, your study about John Fetzer and, you know, his whole take on spirituality and metaphysics and things of that nature, you know, and he has this he has a memorial trust that's being run by mm-hmm. his you said his great great grand nephew. Um yeah. are they continuing to do what is the trust doing now with regards to his legacy and his mission for mm-hmm. his belief? Well, um, the the Fetzer Institute itself uh, continues to promote spirituality in the world. And um, during the 1990s, after John Fetzer died, uh, it funded all sorts of kind of mainstream uh, uh, research into holistic medicine. So it was funding programs through the National Institutes of Health and things like that. And they also did holistic health education. So one of the things they did is they underwrote a a series of um, TV programs with Bill Moyers called Healing with Mm -hmm. the Mind. And it was one of the first times a lot of Americans had ever seen things like acupuncture and those kinds of things presented in a a serious way. And then uh, in the 21st century, after 9-11, the Institute, in response to that, uh, really felt that um, there was a lack of love and forgiveness in the world. And so it's been funding programs to basically develop people's spirituality um, throughout the life cycle, um, from childhood to, to adulthood to old age in hopes that this will help, again, to transform the world. Um, the, the, the mission statement of the Fetzer Institute is to um, uh, build the spiritual foundation of a loving world. So that kind of sums up what they do. Um, wow. In, in, wow. The, in the Institute, there's also this memorial trust, um, which uh, preserves the legacy of John Fetzer, but they also administer something called the Franklin Fetzer Fund, and that's to um, basically uh, fund research into cutting-edge science, so science that's on the cusp of spirituality. And it's very interesting, very high-level stuff um, mm. that looks at the interface of biology and physics uh, with spirit. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. It's like so they're still continuing to do some really cool research in things uh, when it comes to holistic health and, you know, incorporating uh, mind, body, spirit, which is wonderful, absolutely fabulous. Well, we've come to the end of our time, and I just want to ask you to share with the listeners, you know, um, we've talked about this wonderful guy who was definitely um, – beyond the scope of here, so to speak, energetically, Mm -hmm. spiritually, you know, mentally, physically, just, you know, I want to say a trendsetter in so many capacities. I want people to know how they can get, you know, maybe in touch with you or how they can pick up the book, where they can get the Mm -hmm. book, all those good details. Can you share that with us? Sure. Um, The book has been published by Wayne State University Press. And it's available on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com and other online booksellers. And it's available as a hardback, um, but there's also an e-version. So if you want to read it on your Kindle, you can download it and read it on your Kindle. And if um, your listeners are interested in learning more about the Memorial Trust, um, they can go to a website, InfinitePotential.com. And InfinitePotential.com will tell you about the Memorial Trust and its programs. But there's also a link there where people can download a free PDF of the preface and first chapter of the book. So kind of whet your appetite for the book. And then if uh, your listeners are interested in learning more about the Fetzer Institute itself, all you have to do is go to Fetzer, F-E-T-Z-E-R dot org, Fetzer dot org. And there they have a beautiful website that basically talks about a variety of programs that they underwrite um, to basically uh, promote spirituality in the world. Wow. So there you have it, listeners. If you're intrigued or curious or want to learn more, want to get the book and, you know, not be 
um, pointed out as someone that's a new ager into metaphysical <laughs> stuff, you know, definitely check it out. Go to Barnes and Nobles or Amazon.com. Pick up the book, John E. Fetzer and the Quest for the New Age by Dr. Brian C. Wilson. Also, if you're intrigued or you want to know more about some of the things the Institute is doing, you can always go to infinitepotential.com or Fetzer. Org. And this information will be on the website. So, um, again, thank you, thank you so much, Dr. Brian C. Wilson, for being a guest on Blissful Living. This has been really cool oh, conversation. Yeah, very, you know, very enlightening is, I think, the word I want to say, um, and awakening and awareness. Just let me know that I'm okay to be the kind of person I am because, you know, some of the most successful people are just like me. Um, and we just kind of sometimes shine in a different light. And John Fetzer definitely did that. And so it's very cool to, um, you know, to chat about him. And he's probably, cha- we're probably channeling him right now, as he would say. And his energy <laughs> is with us. And he's smiling because he knows that his message and what he believed in so wholeheartedly and and used in his life is being shared now with millions of people. So it's just really, really cool. So thank you again for being a guest on Blissful Living. My pleasure. It's been uh, really a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And I want to thank the listeners, of course. Without them, this wouldn't be, you know, wouldn't be possible. It wouldn't make sense to have a show where you just talk because then, you know, if nobody's listening, it's, (laughs) <laughs> who really cares? So, as always, I want to thank my listeners. Um, without you, um, this could not be possible. We couldn't bring wonderful guests like Dr. Brian C. Wilson to talk about other fabulous people that we don't even know about that, you know, have words of wisdom and nuggets of gold that they're sharing with us through people like Dr. Wilson um, because they're no longer here to disseminate this information to us. So, thank you to the listeners. Thank you to the sponsors, Blissful, Blissful Living for You as well as All Day Cable Incorporated. And until next time, everyone, as always, I wish you peace to your mind, wellness to your body, and tranquility to your spirit. Until next time, goodbye for now. You can find out more about Rochelle on her website, Rochelle Lawson, R-O-C-H-E-L-E, Lawson, L-A-W-S-O-N, or at healthhealingwellness.com. Or just click on her websites from the webtalkradio.net page right in front of you. And, of course, you'll want to come right back here next week for another episode of Blissful Living. Thanks for joining us.